You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. Simply search Faith Roots on YouTube and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to this edition of the Faith Roots Podcast. I'm so glad you've joined me. We're talking about how to turn a trial into a triumph. And uh, we go to the book of James, and this is why he writes in verse 2, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. You can't uh, be full of joy if you know that you're going to be set back, if you're going to be held back, if you're going to lose ground, if you're going to be uh, reduced or harmed, uh, you can't have all joy. It doesn't say we count it all joy for the trials. It says we count it all joy when we're in trials. And here's why. Because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith produces patience. And I want to say this for a minute. Faith works on things. It works on created things. God created the universe with His words of faith. And that's what you see in the book of Hebrews, also in Genesis chapter 1. Patience, on the other hand, works on us. When we use faith, and especially when we use faith without an instantaneous result, when we have to stand in faith, wait in faith, walk in faith, when we are believing for something that does not immediately materialize. And can I say this? Most of the things that we receive from God will not immediately materialize. Some will, but most do not. And we have a whole list of people in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 who walked in faith, who did not immediately receive everything that God said they could have. They had to wait, and they became patient through this waiting, and they became very strong spiritually because of that. Patience makes you stronger. What does it do? It produces a settled peace in you. And in fact, what happens is you learn to act as though you already received the thing that you prayed for. You, 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 you are so sure of it, so certain of it, and that you're rejoicing. And so the arrival of that thing is not what you're pinning all your hopes on. One of the things I've seen that people do is they postpone their joy because they have uh, uh, an idea that certain things are going to come, and uh, when that comes, man, am I going to be happy. And we're to have joy all the time. We're to have joy even before the answer shows up, because we know we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us and uh, wants the very best for us, so we don't have to have a thing in order to be full of joy. We are full of joy because of the promise that he made to us, and, and not just one promise, but a whole book full of promises. So let's go to the book of James chapter 1 now in verse 12. Now we're going to get into the mechanics of trials and temptations. He talks about how you resist them, and uh, talks about how patience works, and talks about how we sometimes ask for wisdom and receive wisdom. But then in verse 12, he changes it just a little bit, and he says this, "'Blessed is the man who endures temptation.'" For when he has been tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So the believer already has eternal life. 
If you're a believer and, and, and this is written to you, uh, the, the Bible says we receive a crown when we're tried. Uh, we get tried many, many times. Could it be that we receive many, many crowns? That's very possible. But this crown is not our salvation. Uh, our salvation is given to us uh, on the basis of grace, not because we did something to merit it. And that's very clear from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. The crown of life is a reward for enduring temptation. And you and I are going to endure temptation many, many times in our walk with God. Many, many times, hundreds of times. Does that mean you're going to receive hundreds of crowns? Don't know. The word here is Stephanos, and uh, uh, what I want you to think about is it's a victor's crown. It's the symbol of triumph in the games or some such contest, and it's token of public honor. Um, I think of uh, here in America, the, the thing that we're the most impressed by is that Medal of Honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. When you see that star hanging around someone's neck with that little pendant, uh, ooh, that's, that's really special. There aren't many of those, and that's what makes them really special. It could be that we receive one crown, but that crown has little insets or marks on it for all the times that we uh, have endured. I think about our Lincoln Bulldogs football team. Uh, from the very earliest moments of our uh, football program, our coach did uh, something called the secret ceremony of the bone. And uh, they gave out little plastic stickers that, that the kids would put on their helmets for outstanding plays, and they would read off what they had done in a game, and they might get five bones, one bone, ten bones, uh, depending on what they did in a game. But they would give these rewards, and so you would see some players with loads and loads of bones, and, and i got to tell you, they're very proud of those. And it's neat to see how each kid displays those bones differently. Most guys put them on the back of their helmets because you put them on the front, collisions with other players from the other teams uh, are going to tear up your bones. So they protect them pretty well by putting them in the back. But you can see this with a lot of college football players, for instance, the Ohio State uh, helmets are marked with Buckeyes. Everybody's got their own little system for this. But uh, it could be that that's exactly what God does. We get one crown, and then he, he studs it with diamonds for every trial that we overcome. So an overcomer might have a crown that's just really riddled with precious stones. We don't know. We'll find out someday. Now, temptations don't last forever. Uh, a, a licensed a, a clinical psychologist who has been to our church and done some teaching, and uh, particularly about uh, testing and temptation and, and in the sexual realm for men, he says this only lasts for 10 to 15 minutes. He said, don't think that this sexual temptation that you're in is going to last you forever. It's extended if you don't resist it. But if you resist it, if you are determined to stand against it, and you have an effective means, since you're speaking the Word of God, you're changing your thoughts, uh, you, you're dealing with this effectively, you're eliminating the source of temptation, when you do that, the temptation will pass. And, uh, and a few minutes later, you'll wonder why you were ever tempted, because it loses its appeal. So temptation is not eternal. Now, like I said, when you yield to temptation a lot, it can become stronger and stronger and last longer and longer. But temptations don't last forever. If you're tempted, you do have the ability to resist. 
And sometimes we make it worse and harder on ourselves by not resisting effectively. God has nothing to do with the temptation. This is James 1.13, King James Version. Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God doesn't use evil to accomplish his purposes. He does not do that. Every act of God is done from the motive of love. The Bible says the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Now, God has wrath, but when God does release his wrath, it is for the highest good of the human race. Every act that he gives and does is an act of love. Now, a lot of people look very harshly on the God who destroyed Pharaoh and all of his armies in the Red Sea. And I want you to track with me for a minute and let's go back and take a look at that whole situation. Moses was sent by God to tell the Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. Pharaoh was as cruel as he was because he lived and operated under the power of a number of false gods. Uh, they weren't just uh, mythological gods that the Egyptians worshipped. They were actually demons. These demons manifested certain powers. When Moses threw down his rod and it became a serpent, Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. That was something supernatural. They didn't pull that off by themselves. There were demonic powers that made that to happen. When Pharaoh or when Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing. When Moses called for frogs to fill the land, Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. Only when it came time for the mosquito gnat, King James says the lice, came on the Egyptians, uh, they couldn't do that, and they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So what God wanted to show is there's a contrast between me, Yahweh, and these false gods of Egypt. And what he wanted to do was destroy the belief of the Egyptians and the confidence of the Egyptians in these false gods. So every one of the ten plagues that came was designed to do a work against these gods of Egypt. Now, the tenth plague was the plague of the Passover. And because Satan had killed hundreds and hundreds of Hebrews, no doubt many of them died from beating, but many of their own baby boys were thrown into the Nile River to be devoured of the crocodiles because Pharaoh insisted that none of the baby boys could live. So there had been a terrible amount of bloodshed. God came back and he instituted the Passover and he gave fair warning to everyone that the death angel was going to pass through. When the death angel came and there was the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel over the top, uh, the cross, there's a vertical and a horizontal, and the blood was on both. It's a picture of the cross. The death angel couldn't go into the home and couldn't kill the firstborn son. And so only after the loss of the firstborn son did Pharaoh finally agree he would let the Hebrews go. Now the Hebrews did go, and they went out with great power. Uh, they had uh, gone to the Egyptians and asked for their wealth, and the Egyptians freely said, yes, take it, just go. And uh, all they were doing is basically paying uh, the Hebrews for the work that they'd done and never been paid. And so God sent them out in fairness and equity. Now they traveled 
toward Midian. Moses was going to take them to the place where he had seen the burning bush and where God had spoken to him. That was going to be their stop-off point before they went to the land of Canaan. But they didn't go that route. They went near that route, but they turned suddenly before they got to the Red Sea, and they followed a narrow canyon or a wadi, and it was a creek or stream, uh, dry most of the time, that led down to a beach on the west side of the Red Sea. And when they got there, there was no way to get out. But that's where God led them. And keep in mind, it wasn't just God speaking to Moses. It was this cloud that led them in the daytime and a pillar of fire that led them at night. And so this is where God led them. When Pharaoh heard they were there, he said, Aha, the sea has hemmed them in. Now I'm going to kill them. And he loaded up his army and chose his best chariots, and they went after the Hebrews. He was determined to kill every one of them. God parted the Red Sea just in time for the children of Israel to walk across the bottom on dry ground. When Pharaoh got to the shore of the Red Sea, he did not have to go in. He had a free will about all of this. And keep this in mind. Had the destruction of Pharaoh been what God wanted to do, he could have killed Pharaoh the very first time that Moses stepped into his palace. Moses could have said, you're done, and Pharaoh would have dropped over dead. That was not God's purpose. He didn't want to destroy the Egyptians. He wanted to chasten them to turn their faith away from these demonic gods that they worshipped. Pharaoh never turned. Now he is so full of hatred He's going to kill every last Hebrew, not just bring them back. He wants to kill them all. And so the Red Sea is opened up. And he, in the face of this amazing miracle, is so blinded by his rage, he does not realize that he is going into forbidden territory. Now listen, God did not kill him on his own soil. God killed him on holy ground. And this holy ground is the bottom of the Red Sea. Did God kill him? Yes, God did kill him, but God didn't want to kill him. God wanted him to turn around and go back and gave him every chance to do it. But he also knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew Pharaoh was not about to, to stop. And so Pharaoh really is the one who chose death. And this is important. What was life and deliverance to the children of Israel was death and destruction to the people of Egypt and to Pharaoh and his army. What made the difference? Their choice. So you see, when God acts in his wrath, he does it in order to save his people. If there had been no Hebrews to chase, God would never have destroyed Pharaoh in the Red Sea. God did it because he was protecting his people. So when the wrath of God falls on anyone, it's because there was someone in covenant with God that he has to protect and that is the goodness of God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He's never using evil to hurt or harm people. And when evil does happen, when wrath happens, it is because the covenant people are in danger and God has to intervene. All the time I have for today, but we're not done. We'll pick up here tomorrow. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app 
and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you for listening.